you know, we'd sacrifice some profit for environmental and social uh, better outcomes, which just didn't make sense to the accountants in the room. But it certainly seems now that the tide has turned and what's turned that tide maybe is not the attitudes of pale male stale kind of boards and, and senior management, but the fact that it's, a, it's an employee's market globally and employees are, you know, especially the younger generations that are doing the, the heavy lifting, demanding more purpose or they're moving to companies which have better purpose, better environmental outcomes. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Dave Rice, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. You're the CEO of Carbon Click. What's its mission? What's its purpose? So Carbon Click's on a mission to make climate action simple and meaningful and transparent. Um, I, I guess that's a mission and a purpose. Um, we do it through usually e-commerce uh, by providing the option to offset voluntarily at the point of sale, which is where you're bringing your consumers or your customers along for the drive um, with you. And I think that's the bit that excites me about your platform. It's all about personal interaction and their own behaviours and thoughts and attitudes. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Engaging your audience on your sustainability journey when you're already on a strong reduction journey is really powerful. It certainly helps. Uh, in fact, we won't work with those not on a reduction journey. But uh, e equally, um, when you do engage that audience on that same journey, it certainly seems to align them to your brand more strongly and remind them that your, your brand is a strong environmental one. And, and we see significantly higher, between 7 and 13% higher repurchase rates from customers who click the green uh, carbon click button on your e-commerce site, which is pretty impressive. And so it gives a sense of how long it's been operating, what, what was its origins, how did it start? Yeah, so our founders built and um, monitored and improved the carbon offset platform for an international airline, which was well ahead of its time. They learned a lot of insights about uh, customers who were clicking it and customers who were not clicking it. Um, and transparency was one of the biggest concerns there in that they thought that the airline customers thought that the airline was trying to make money out of them um, with another option that was probably being taxed by the airline. So in this case, the airline wasn't. And so proving out an audit trail where the customer could actually see, like track and trace on a courier, uh, if the customer could actually see that their donation had reached those projects was key to unlocking higher uptake and higher um, loyalty and repurchase rates from those customers. And the founders understood that trust was a key element to this? Absolutely, yeah. In offsetting, integrity and trust is vitally important. So you've got multi-levels of this. First of all, the carbon offset projects themselves, there are good ones and there are quite average ones or probably bad ones, dare I say. So we look at additionality and permanence and biodiversity improvements that go along with some of them, social impact, uh, positive social impacts that go along with some of them. And we really hand select the, um, the projects that are going to make a tangible difference to um, to tomorrow's world. So that's that's just on the offset side of it. And then you've got the integrity of, is all the money being transferred across to those projects, which is uh, kind of on the technology side of things. And where did you join the, the team? When did it come real for you? I was uh, doing some uh, philanthropic investing, I guess, uh, clean tech and climate tech investing. I came across 
Jan and Paul, my co-founders, at an accelerator where they were wanting to get their idea off off the ground and um, and quit their jobs. I loved their idea. I fell in love with them, the passion, the um, you know five years of thought into the idea that had gone in while they were working for this airline and saw this as my opportunity to really dive in and, and make a difference. I offered to back them through their friends, family and fools around, but they, they sort of came back to me and asked if I would co-found it with them and, and be their CEO, which I was only too delighted to, uh, to dive into. It's something I've been very passionate about myself. So here we are today, two and a half years in. And that excitement about the people behind an idea is crucial for you and your investment strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Like if the founders have passion that's uh, passion and tenacity, they're going to inevitably face bad times and difficult times, uh, you know, difficult customers. If they can get through that and, and continue to believe and see the vision that can carry them through those tough times, uh, through to the good times, then that's really important to me because when you're the founder or founders, there's nobody else motivating you except yourselves. You know, you have control over your team, but if you don't have the right mindset and, and attitude yourselves, that's probably a recipe for disaster. So the, these guys uh, had all the passion and enthusiasm that I had, and it was not just superficial and, and you know, whim of the moment kind of stuff they'd spent five years being passionate about it so i figured this was a solid opportunity solid people that we're dealing with and um it wasn't just a drunken idea yeah because we're at the bottom of the world and and uh you guys have had real global reach give us a a feel of how it's gone how it's scaled like numbers of staff clients like just give us a sense of the sort of growth of it so the first year was just about building the tech out um, and testing the market. We already had uptake from a number of airlines that had signed up to us prior to the tech even being released. So this was when Greta Thunberg was uh, busy driving the flugscam or flight shaming movement. And then COVID hit. So we diversified into the wider e-commerce sector and, and built our way up, learning from smaller stores through to larger stores now. The team has been or evolved really from a tech-led team of about 10 to begin with to scaling back some of that tech to you know tech-led uh, maybe six tech players in the team and bringing in some sales and marketing resource to start testing the market with that testing of the market we've we've now got seven offshore employees as well so team of 19 today and we're you know we're offsetting I guess, probably a couple of million dollars a year worth of carbon through the platform now. And what tends to be the barriers so you, you win a client? What's the st stickability, like what gets them to stick and, and use and endure? We haven't lost a client that's actually turned off the carbon click green button. They've been, you know, in the smaller markets, there have been several, you know, Shopify stores closing down and so on, which is the challenge with that SME space. And during COVID, a lot of people were testing a, a, a home business. We've never lost a client to a competitor or had a client actually turn the platform off um, to date. And the reason is it's it's good for the environment and good for business. So, so everybody wins. Those repurchase rates that they're seeing um, are a really strong financial incentive to keep it there. I guess this is what we were aiming for is something that made sense from a business perspective as well. The biggest challenge we actually have is getting in front of an organization at a sea level because generally speaking uh, in this environment a lot of organizations are struggling particularly the travel sector uh, and tourism where 
they're focusing on anything to stay alive financially and they see ESG or, or any sustainability element as, as a cost. So it's really hard, even though it's a necessity and a lot of businesses see it as a necessity, it's really hard to get bandwidth where you can pitch this kind of thing when there are competing bandwidths with cost savings or um, financial opportunities. Once we get in front of that C-suite, we find it very easy to progress from there because they realise that this is actually going to help with uh, financial outputs as well as uh, environmental ones. And what works in, get in front of getting in front of the C-suite? What typically works? That's really hard. We're still working on that one. Word of mouth, uh, leveraging our investment network is really powerful because, you know, we're, we're 80% of our business is outside of New Zealand. It's global. The networks that we have in those countries that can get us a, a fast track into an organisation at a C-level is the only way that we've made real progress to date. And that, that's where we get some sort of six-month sales cycles. Everything else is just a case of having to bring on actual manpower, bringing on sales uh, BDMs who can work their way up an organisation from the sustainability manager or marketing manager upwards to C-level and that takes longer. It can take up to nine months, well, even 12 months sales cycle in that case. So we try and leverage wherever we can to get that shortcut down to a six-month sales cycle, but most of it is uh, enterprise grade um, working our way up. The new opportunities ahead of us are through real uh, strong partnerships. So we have partnerships with SAP, for example, and SAP are taking us and presenting us to CIOs of some of the world's leading brands and that's, that's another way that we can get in front of them quicker. Wonderful. And changing tack for a bit, um, taking you right back to uh, Auckland University, where, where I, um, I noticed you did medicine, which is uh, <laughs> the path you set. But you, I think you said, or no one said that you, you didn't like to be around sort of dying people or sick people. And you changed tact and headed towards engineering. But what was the thinking in terms of your medical career? Actually, I was not mature enough at the time. I was, you know, 18-year-old male and uh, I didn't like the, the concept, the emotional dealings with dying patients. I, I worked as a volunteer at the uh, Starship working with paediatricians and I got quite upset um, when patients that I'd been working with for, you know, for a month or so uh, died. And I thought to myself at the time, shit, if I'm getting, excuse my friend, my language there, I thought to myself at the time, if I'm getting upset about this, it's probably not a good career for me um, if I'm thinking too much into it. So I switched into engineering, which was another thing I loved, and aviation, and started uh, working through the science and, um, and technology sector and, and loved that as well. I never worked as an engineer, but, um, but loved studying it, and, and I thought I needed street credit by having a degree. So that's, uh, that's kind of why I pursued it. Yeah, and, and university is a lot of fun. Um, has that led you to get your pilot's license? No, I did that um, concurrently to um, to university. It was kind of a, um, it, I wanted that as a sort of job to carry me through without realising that the dream had been sold to me a little bit uh, falsely and that you can't get a job as a pilot very easily. So actually came out, came out of university with a pretty significant student loan and um, very little flying opportunity. <laughs> I went away and flew for a while and built some hours up and did some commercial uh, flying work, but then realised that I actually didn't enjoy the commercial flying work. I'd started getting into business at an early age and uh, spent all my time in the cockpit thinking about how to tweak businesses. So I basically did that full time um, 
whilst keeping, you know, I kept my aviation interests up. I did a little bit of private jet work um, just to keep uh, keep my finger in the pie. But um, most of my time was then building businesses. Any nemesis? Oh, look, a couple of scary moments. Yeah, like like any pilot will probably tell you, there's there's a couple of hairy uh, incidents. Particularly when you're building your hours up, you're flying dodgy planes, you're flying into dodgy airstrips, and you're doing what you have to do to, to build those hours up before you can get into the nicer planes. Absolutely, there were some hairy moments. <laughs> it kind of, I like looking at your career, you don't mind being in the mix around sort of hairy moments, I can see, because you've done a lot of different varied things. Strong entrepreneurial streak for you, like you want to be kind of high, high octane, high adrenaline career compared to others? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I got uh, you know hooked on business, uh, and uh, I occasionally got too cocky about it too. I in, thought I had the Midas touch, and it turns out I didn't. Uh, just done some things right along the way, and had a couple of failed businesses as well, um, just to keep me honest. But certainly, I, I wouldn't say a, a, anything different to normal entrepreneurs' sort of journey in that in that respect. Can you talk about one of those failures and and how it affected you and how it changed or may, or maybe made you who you are today? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a couple of really good uh, spectacular ones. One was a muscle exporting, um, green-lipped muscle exporting business in, um, that we started in 2007, myself and another partner, and we just saw a gap in the market, exporting New Zealand mussels into Korea, half shells frozen with a new technology that um, opened them without cooking them, so they retain all of the flavor, or more of the flavor. And we went really big, really fast. So we were exporting 340 foot containers full of mussels every month, more than any other exporter in, or mussel exporter in New Zealand. So we outgrew Tallies and Sea Lords and all of those guys but we had a contract and we hadn't hedged, we were making a 20% margin, we hadn't hedged enough for the currency changes that then came about and the US dollar swung from 50 cents against New Zealand to 70 cents. So we had a 40% fluctuation, so we were then trading at a 20% loss until we basically had to um, uh, shut the business down. Um, we tried to renegotiate the contract, but it didn't work at that price point. So we lost all the money that we made um, and then walked away with, with nothing um, after a very stressful year of, um, of growing this entity. Uh, we tried to re-enter the market several years later, but somebody else had already got in there and, and we weren't able to pick up any contracts again. So it was a one-hit wonder that, um, like, there's a few musicians that have been down this path. <laughs> did you take that really personally? Did you, did you let it affect your confidence? Because I imagine you were quite young at this point. I was in my late 20s at that point. And yeah, look, I, you know, we, we struggled with the banks and things. And we sort of said at the time, look, you guys are making it all too hard for us. We're just going to do it off our own backs and, and do it with letters of credit, uh, payment in advance and all that. But the, the banks had warned us that you needed a good bank behind you. You needed hedging policies behind you and all that kind of thing. And But they created so much admin for us that we just said, no, nah, look, go away. We'll, we'll do this without your help. And it, it was hard, you know, telling the bank to shove it, and then, <laughs> and then, perhaps that would have seen us through if we'd uh, if we'd worked through the paperwork more diligently and and been more friendly with the banks. But the other big failure was a, um, a telco that I bought out from liquidation a few years after that, which was turning over a million a month uh, in 
uh, in sales and had a lot of uh, potential to you know sort of triple that but the incumbents that they owed money to when they went under were um, you know one of uh, one of New Zealand's largest motor, uh, mobile providers and one of New Zealand's largest ISPs and those guys uh, they played very very dirty um, and I sort of learned not to take on the big guys um, I thought it was a fair playing field but I should have you know I should have known that we're pretty anti-competitive in New Zealand and it takes a lot to um, to fight those those big guys. Do those experiences make you feel fairly bulletproof now and and also you just have a understanding of exposure and what you will take on and what you take on like is it those those experiences must have affected the way you do business now? Absolutely. Like I've, I've totally learnt to um, to respect the you know the businesses that have earned their stripes, uh, respect the how dangerous that they can be when they're threatened, and you know it's it's not a case of just being able to go out there and change the world straight away without being uh, smashed with legal challenges. And you know they've got very very deep pockets which I didn't have so that you know they could play a game where they just threw litigation at me until I couldn't defend it anymore uh, I realized this you know a couple of months in when they just kept throwing challenges at me that were stupid but I still had to defend them and would always win but it's always a legal battle to get there so I, I have learned a lot about respecting those that have been there a long time um, you know I wouldn't go trying to start up an airline in opposition to um, the predominant players in New Zealand and in, in markets like this or even in Australia for example and what was so you clearly endured and you know you kept with this entrepreneurial um, focus and and you've you know you've, you've went on to have successes after that looking back at at home was did you know your parents did they kind of um, encourage the entrepreneurial Dave or what was that like at home were they was there fair amount of robustness needed to be in your house? Certainly. I mean, my parents, they separated when I was younger, but my mum was a, you know, naturopath and very much the um, the naturopath lifestyle. We lived out in the bush and um, she was very, you know, anti-plastic, anti-anything that wasn't natural, really. Uh, but we were very healthy, lived a, a really enjoyable lifestyle. There's certainly, I mean, back then it wasn't a problem having iPads and things because they weren't invented yet, but we had a really healthy respect for nature and on my father's side he was a merchant banker and it got me involved in the stock market you know I'd, I'd just start asking for shares in, in certain things every time my birthday came up since I was 13 maybe even 12. Loved, loved following that I won the um, in New Zealand we have a young enterprise scheme Lion Nathan back then uh, young enterprise scheme and I won the, uh, the um, challenge for our school with a um, with a pretty cool little idea when I was 16 and, and just loved that entrepreneurial business kind of uh, journey e ever since. I'd, I'd sort of probably got the bug when I was at school, to be honest. A lot of my guests talk about, you know, so 80s and 90s, to even 2000s, where, you know, business is somehow separate to sustainability or caring for the planet or where clearly you had a did, do you remember that vision thinking that actually power the power of business to solve some of those environmental issues or business could be just done with all of those things in mind was that a strong theme that emerged kind of merging your home life yeah absolutely so i always uh, felt um you know when i when i went to school and saw everyone you know wrapping everything in plastic and and saw seeing the rubbish that that was creating everywhere and you know, when 
when you live out in the bush and you don't have rubbish collection, you deliberately avoid those sort of products because you, you've got to deal with the problem. But when on the mass scale, people just put things in a bin and it gets carried away somewhere and, and it, to them it's invisible, they don't realise that there's a problem. So with every business that I got involved in, I aimed to solve that and just you know reduce waste, reduce pollution, look at environmental ways to improve the outcome. So we, we ran triple bottom line accounting before we knew that there was such a word for it. And that was measuring environmental outputs as well as uh, social outputs as well. I think it's critical that business takes responsibility for uh, not making the planet worse or exploiting our planet for artificial gains because if it's not sustainable and you're you know destroying the opportunities for the next generation of businesses then it's it's not a sustainable business and I don't know how we've got along so far in the world without realizing this you know there's certain, certain areas that have run out of um, landfill and, and it becomes an increasing problem. So we've, we've subsidised, our governments successively have subsidised unsustainable business. I, I think it's important that business leaders um, step up and show that this is not okay and just lead by example because we can't wait for government to fix everything. Did you, was there a sense of being a bit of an outlier as, as recently as five years ago, where do you feel like there is a bit of fo- bigger focus on this and companies are talking about purpose over profit or purpose first and 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 sustainability issues, you know, still a long way to go, I know, but um, do you feel maybe you, you, what you stand for, your experience is almost more revered now, like in, in, in the current climate? Absolutely. Uh, it certainly, you know, it was worse 10 years ago when, you know, we, we were winning things like Westpac Awards and that, um, Supreme Awards, and there'd be people, you know, making comments about where's the socks and Roman sandals kind of thing. And because, you know, we'd sacrificed some profit for environmental and social uh, better outcomes, which just didn't make sense to the accountants in the room. But it certainly seems now that the tide has turned, and what's turned that tide maybe is not the attitudes of pale male stale kind of boards and and senior management but the fact that it's a, it's an employees market globally and employees are you know especially the younger generations that are doing the the heavy lifting demanding more purpose or they're moving to companies which have better purpose better environmental outcomes social outcomes and so on so the um the boards and senior management are having to address this of course in in another five years, there'll be a lot of uh, legislation that forces them to address this anyway. So it's it's sort of a cross between the employee led, and uh, and certainly in the large like NZX listed environmental reporting uh, and TCFD uh, reporting or disclosures are becoming uh, part of how they have to do business. Absolutely. Now, did I see your? mugshot or your your um your body on the on the side of the nasdaq building in new york uh, yeah <laughs> was that was that one of the best days in in your you know in your business life and just tell us how that happened oh look it's certainly certainly nice to get that sort of recognition at um at a high level as you know one of the companies to um to to keep an eye on for for nasdaq listing came about was uh, we were voted by a large customer of ours that we should be um, up, up for an award there. They're a NASDAQ listed company and thought that we'd done a, a great job revolutionising 
uh, or making things uh, a lot easier for them and, and having some great outcomes for them. So they, they put us up to it and um, and showed results through the NASDAQ. NASDAQ liked, uh, liked it and looked further and said, look, they think that we've got what it takes. They're going to present us up on their billboard and hope that they're the listing that we'll choose to um, to go with when the time comes. Just focusing on the fact that you're a CEO of a of growing, scaling business, do you have a sort of way or ethos, way of working that you fall back on a discipline? Do you, do you have a sort of weekly, daily disciplines that you utilize to, because, you know, I think growing uh, a culture, scaling a team in, in a virtual setting, some dif- difficulties with that, but is, it, is there a way of working that you bring into play? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have weekly, monthly, and I have daily priorities as well, which I run and I have, you know, a whiteboard in front of me at all times, whether I'm at home or at work with those key priorities in place. But I also have, you know, in the in the front page of my diary through to um, through to the whiteboards I leave in the corner, the, the three, I call them the big rocks in the jar that everything else has to fit around, which for me has been a couple of the airline platforms that we need to be partnered with uh, within a couple of years of forming ourselves and uh, SAP um, uh, becoming partnered with SAP. So that was kind of the, the three big rocks two years ago and every year I kind of set reset those. Now I've got three other big rocks, which I, I can't disclose what they are, but we've nailed two of the three big rocks so far out of out of the previous uh, focus. But I think it's really important that everything that you do is uh, not getting caught up in the, in the trenches. There is obviously uh, multiple hats that you're wearing in a tech startup, uh, which is not easy to balance, but you, you have to learn to say no. You have to make sure that you're setting aside some daily discipline to keep making progress towards uh, the biggest rocks in the jar, as, as I call them. Similarly, on a monthly basis, where should I be up to with um, progress towards those goals? Um, weekly is more operational. Uh, what are the key things that the team is doing? Um, uh, what are the key goals that everybody's got to get out? And, and just helping them on a, on a week-to-week basis to make sure that they smash their own goals out um, in the shorter term. And where do you, do you have a mentor? Do you, do you... Is it content you draw on or, or people you draw on either virtually or in person to kind of keep you motivated and, and kind of excited? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, for a start, you know, I, I'm part of a program called Level Up with um, one of my favourite mentors, Linda Jenkinson. She's chair of UNICEF and, and a bunch of uh, other amazing board positions, but she's been an accomplished entrepreneur with, you know, hundreds of million dollar exits as well in the US and a lot of experience scaling in the US so she keeps me on my toes as far as um, progress towards goals go and I think that's really important is having somebody accountable that you're accountable to that's of such a big scale that you can't actually let them down or you feel like you can't let them down. That keeps me going as well at times when I'm not um, motivating myself (laughs) so it's a bit of an insurance policy more than anything. And how do you learn? Where do you get your learning? I do a lot of reading. I listen to a lot of podcasts like this as well, and and I try and pull out one key idea from each podcast that I'm going to uh, use in my own business. That's that's always the goal, even if I'm only half concentrating because I'm driving to work at the time or something. And just a few quick fire questions, if um, if that's okay. Person you'd most like to have lunch with, dead or alive? Yeah, David, David, Sir David Attenborough. I met him very briefly when he was in Auckland five years ago maybe six years ago now. Starstruck? 
were you? Yeah, yeah. I've, you know, since a kid, I've been his uh, <laughs> maybe equal number one fan with millions of others. <laughs> Book you'd recommend as a must read? Uh, scaling Up. Um, Vern Harnish is a good one. Um, and probably, uh, I mean, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was at, um, at school, and that sort of helped frame my way of thinking looking forward. Yeah, I, 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 me too. I, I, <laughs> that was a real awakening in many ways for me, actually. Um, in terms of um, favorite device, like it sounds like your whiteboard, but uh, maybe there's another one. No, I, I love the whiteboard. I love using colors. Um, it, it, um, yeah, that's that's by far <laughs> contributed more to my success than any other electronic device. <laughs> and what should people do more of? Um, in your mind, uh, in business? Yeah, meditation. Honestly, that's a game changer. And this is the difference between being in the trenches and and being able to remove yourself from the trenches, take another high-level look at it and see what's on the horizon and see what's changing on the horizon too because you might be in the wrong trench. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And a last quick fire, business or business, someone in business that inspires you and gets you excited about the future, um, maybe in in the tech space, maybe in the sustainability space. Is there any business or person that really gets you fired up? Look, yeah, absolutely, and and friend of mine as well, Aaron McDonald at Centrality. Um, he's one of the pioneers in the Web three space, and just uh, you know, they they have a, a, a motto of I don't know, you might need to beat this, but their motto is "unfuck the world." And what they're trying to do is fix what's wrong with our broken various systems, fix what's non inclusive about metaverses and and crypto. And I really uh, look up to, to him. Um, it, we work together as well uh, through Carbon Click, being able to deliver some opportunities to uh, decarbonize what they're already trying to reduce the carbon footprint in, which is the crypto um, carbon footprint problem. Yeah, that's uh, he's certainly uh, somebody I look up to on a on a weekly basis, and um, and am able to share great ideas with. Wonderful. And and just to close. In terms of the future for Carbon Click and, you know, what would you like it to look like in five years, sort of 10 years? Five years, 10 years, we certainly want to be the, uh, have earned that respect from the audience so that they know, like WWF has in the nature space, they've earned that credibility and respect that people know that it's a safe donation to make. We want to earn that same respect in the carbon uh, world so that people know when they're offsetting with Carbon Click, it's going to truly change the world it's going to projects which have high integrity high quality and uh, projects that they're going to fall in love with so that makes it a very easy decision for businesses to offset with us as well as for uh, individuals to click that green button wonderful well all the best to you and the team for the future uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna personally stay connected and um thanks for joining me on purposely pleasure thanks very much mark listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.